Hi, my friends. This is Deepak, and we are continuing our conversations, cutting-edge conversations on science, spirituality, consciousness, and the nature of reality. And today, my very special guest is Alan Steinfeld, who is the author of this book, um, which you can see, Making Contact. You can see it on his uh, on his page as well on uh, on the screen. And uh, Alan and I have been friends for more than 20 years. So Making Contact is a book about preparing for the new realities of extraterrestrial existence. So of course, I've been fascinated by the subject myself. And, um, you know, I'm fascinated by the idea that other intelligence uh, long involved with Earth other intelligences long involved with Earth will finally acknowledge humans as fellow sentient beings in the implicate order. So that's a quote from the book, yes. uh, which I randomly opened up. Um, and, and there's another quote, there is no out, there is no out there, out there. So very interesting quotes. And also, you know, here's something from Henry David Thoreau, the universe is wider than our views of it. Direct your eye inward and you'll find a thousand regions in your mind yet undiscovered. Travel them and be expert in home cosmography. So those are very intriguing uh, quotes and ideas. I'll just start by saying, first of all, welcome to this show on the Thank show for well. Alan, but what made you author this book? Uh, it has several authors actually, so it's edited by you. Mm -hmm. And uh, why did you do it? Mm -hmm. And what is your hope um, that this book will achieve as this message, all these different ideas reach mainstream public? Thank you, Deepak, for that question, because we've been talking about consciousness a long time. Every time I interview you, it always goes back to the idea that consciousness is everything. But what if there was another window on consciousness? It's still consciousness. It's still oneness, but there's a greater oneness out there. How does this change who we are? What is possible as far as biology, technology, cosmology? I feel there's something more to existence than do just this plane. And a lot of people I've interviewed and worked with in this book talk about their research. I have 11 different authors in here, including my own essay. And it goes from the exo, the external, the nuts and bolts, to the esso. How is this affecting us on the deepest levels of awareness? So it's a progression of essays from the outside to the inside. And as we look at this topic of more of existence, I think it expands who we are as human beings. If, if you suddenly find a new avenue of science, you're, you're, you're a, a medical doctor, if you suddenly find a new intrigue to the human body, a, a new thing, a new impulse in creation, it's fascinating. So we are at a time in history now where the government seems to be acknowledging the existence of these other beings 
as well as people having their own experiences. So I think if we can include the vaster world of the other, of whatever these beings are, I'm not even saying they're definitely aliens. There are, there's something out there. And if we can incorporate these others into our field of human awareness, it amplifies us. It increases our possibility. So that's my fascination. I know there's something more. Some people go into the mystical lens and, and say, yes, there's interdimensional consciousnesses that, but I think there's another level of 3D or 4D consciousness and it's right here. It is about to arrive at our doorstep. Does that make sense? I hear what you're saying. I have a slightly different interpretation okay. of it, but uh, what you're saying, I have no argument with. Um, you say there are 11 authors. Yes. So why don't you take us and the audience through each of their views very briefly, not in great detail, because I'm sure those views, diverse as they are, um, are have a common thread. So let's do that. Okay, thank you for that. So I start off with a government insider. So I wanted to start off with someone looking at just the hardware. Let me just back up and say what's been called UFOs, whatever that is, are now being rebranded as UAPs. That means unidentified flying objects have went to unexplained aerial phenomena. And this was actually initiated into the public by Hillary Clinton on Jimmy Kimmel's show in 2016 when she was running for president. She said, no, we're not calling them UFOs. We're calling them UAPs, which means phenomena. There is, uh, these are not just objects in the sky. There's telepathy involved. There's an association of um, sometimes healing, sometimes um, a download of, of other information coming to people. So we can no longer say these are objects. And that's what I start with. I start with the idea of objects to phenomena written by Nick Pope. Now, Nick Pope was a investigator for the Ministry of Defense in the UK. He would take these reports, look at them, check them out and say, you know, I think there's something to this. And so he gives us the beginning of the narrative, which says, you know, there's reasons why the government isn't telling us this. There are reasons to keep secrets. There's technology involved. There's, um, you know, mass hysteria possibly. Um, so what does the government know? What they, what, what is also maybe benefit to corporate, corporate um, um, insiders who want the um, really don't want to release that information because obviously whatever's here is not filling up their gas tank. So that's chapter one, just the external. Then we go to Grant Cameron, who's a who's an expert in U.S. presidents and UFOs. So he talks about this phenomena involving consciousness. He says if you've seen something in the sky, you were meant to see it you are part of the situation. There's an entanglement that happens when you look at these objects because they are seeing you as you are seeing them. So we go into that avenue of, of technology and consciousness. And then I, then I connect that to the JJ and Desiree Hurtak who have been my associates, you've interviewed them. They are more mystics. They talk about the idea that there are multiple dimensions. There are levels of physicality that some beings of higher consciousness, if that's what these things are, 
can move between these fields. So we get into this idea of combining technology with a kind of uh, spiritual mysticism. And I think this phenomena is a bridge between those two worlds. And the fourth chapter is Linda Moulton Howe, who is a, um, she's a reporter. She's a mainstream reporter. She got into this field by studying cattle mutilations, which was quite a strange thing in the 70s and 80s. These cows were drained of all their blood. The soft tissue was taken out of them. There was no footprints around these cattle and something happened. So she was a mainstream reporter until she asked the sheriff out in Colorado, what do you think is happening? And, she, and the sheriff says, you know, these are not done by any beings on this planet because they've seen these ships. And that just sent a chill through her. She was not expecting that. And her life changed in that moment. And she has now dedicated her, her whole career as a reporter to investigating what this phenomenon is about. Who are the insiders? She gets government whistleblowers because she's been so dedicated. People who are aware that there's something being hidden here and there's government whistleblowers that have come forward and say to her, and she says this in her chapter, there are three extraterrestrial races competing for control of this planet. Now that has a lot of implications, uh, but this is what she's been told. And, and so I'll just leave that there. There's a lot more to that chapter. And then I go from Linda Moulton Howe to John Mack. And I've talked about John Mack with you on your program on Sirius. He was a psychiatrist at Harvard. He, um, a professor of psychiatry and a, a, a psychiatric uh, counselor himself. Someone told him about this idea of alien abductions, which seems so ridiculous. Well, it seems, still seems ridiculous. How could these people be taken in the middle of the night until he started talking to these people? When he started talking to these people who claimed to have this experience, he said, you know, these people aren't crazy. There's something to them. And you can't judge another person's experience. You could tell me you've had the most fantastic um, thing happen to you. And I would say that's your experience. So he trusts these people as and because he's he psychiatrically evaluated them and they do not have any more psychosis or neurosis than anyone else so he started to get into maybe this is happening on another level of awareness so he his basic bottom line is if we're going to understand this phenomena we need another way of knowing we need more abstract knowledge we need to not collapse the wave function into saying this is a thing this is what it is. So if we can float in the abstract awareness and, and keep all possibilities in superposition, we will get closer to this phenomena. So from there, I go to one of the um, all-time experiences of this field, Whitley Strieber. In 1989, he wrote a book called Communion, which became a bestseller because he talked about being taken by these beings, which was very traumatic for him. It freaked him out. And it was only until he had learned to go within his own awareness was he able to make peace with that experience and meet these beings on a level playing field. And that's sort of a, another message of the book that we, these beings, whatever they are, whatever their technology is, they're not greater than us. They are equal to us as a power of sentience. They may be more intelligent, they may have greater technology, but they are, they're not greater than who we are as insoled beings. 
And that's sort of what his chapter's about. How do we meet these others on an even playing field? And from there, I go into my chapter with my experience, which is a strange uh, occurrence in 1987, traveling cross country where traveling with a girlfriend, we slept by the side of this road and we woke up at, in the morning and felt a little weird, a little strange. I found a mark on the back of my leg. And coincidentally, I happened to meet people back in New York who said, yeah, that's a scar from one of these contact. And I, I met the godfather of, let's call him alien abductions called Bud Hopkins. And I learned, and I became obsessed with the topic because I wanted to know what happened to me. And that actually this book is a sort of outgrowth of the search for answers. And I'm still looking for answers. I, I, there's 11 different essays because I, no one has the whole truth. This is a multi-level um, situation where it's like you have all the pieces of the elephant, but you have not seen the elephant. You just have the pieces. So that's what I got in these in these collection of essays. And then I talk to people who've had direct experiences with these beings. That um, one is Daryl Anka, who channels a being named Bashar. For 38 years, he's had this ongoing contact with this being who is calls himself a first contact specialist. I mean, up until this last part. So I go from investigators to researchers to abductees to contactees. The contactees are the ones that it all becomes a matter of their own experience. There is no objectivity in that. So that might be a place where some people are you know, separating from the narrative. But I, so Daryl Anka talks about his experience meeting this interdimensional being and the wisdom of that. And they go to Mary Rodwell who talks to children who've had these, um, what she calls star seeds. They come in with a memory of other places and a message. And then in the final chapter, I talked to Carolyn Corey, who actually seems to have merged with these other levels of consciousness. She's the closest I've met to a real walking interdimensional being. So that sort of sums it up. And um, you can see as we go deeper into the book, we go deeper into the levels of what it is to be aware. What is it to be aware of awareness on these other levels? So. I think when you talk about awareness, I've heard you over the years, it is great. It's all awareness. It's all awareness of awareness. But what if there was, and I'm asking you this question, something outside your field of awareness that suddenly you became, you noticed, how would that shake you up? How would that change your idea? It doesn't make you less aware. It just, it's as if you're discovering another country. What, what does that do? to the field of consciousness when we realize there's more to existence than what we have known. Okay, so that's a very good summary. Um, and thanks for taking us through a short journey through your book. Right. Uh, what is your hope uh, this book right. will do for mm. our collective awareness and mm. no, its future? That is a great question. First of all, I think with this greater awareness, I think it makes us more human it shows us there's more to the human being that our consciousness is non-local, that we can meet these other beings, whatever they are, on a different level of awareness. It, it also prepares people because, you know, if you look at the latest statistics, 
65% of the American public either have seen a UFO or knows someone who has. There's also a huge increase in sightings. There's been 100,000 reported sightings from 2001 to 2020. So for every reported sighting, there is probably, I would say, 50 to 100 unreported. When I see something, I'm not reporting it, and I have seen things. So there seems to be an increase in these things in the sky. So it's, I don't want people to be freaked out. I want them to be prepared for, for what's coming. And I just quote my, um, at the end of my introduction, I quote Joe Dispenza, who I've known for a long time. He says, knowledge is a precursor to experience. The more knowledge you have, the more prepared you are for the event. So if people read this book, and then they see something, they'll say, oh yeah, that's what that is. Because it's different when you see this as opposed to seeing something in a movie. There's been awful sci-fi movies about this because this phenomena is not sci-fi. It's not like anything we've known. It's as if we take an ordinary awareness and suddenly expanded it a hundredfold. So we need to know that there's more to existence. And when we know that by reading this book, we are prepared to meet a greater aspect of the self because all these beings, whatever they are, they're an aspect of the self. And if we don't understand that, we might be traumatized. But when we do understand it, we say, oh yeah, I am I'm meeting the sentience that I am. And humankind, has a chance to expand. I'll give you one more quote. Bruce Lipton says, we're not humans until we, are, we have humanity. Humanity exists when all of us work together in a coherent fashion, knowing that we're all part of the same consciousness. And this replicates the, what evolution is. Evolution started with single cells. They came together to form multicellular colonies first and something happens in those colonies where they're all looking in different direction and there's a synergy of awareness when suddenly the colonies of cells become an organism there's a synergy of awareness in some levels when the the organs in our bodies come together to form this singularity of consciousness that we know there's there's a synergy of awareness in cities that come together to form countries and countries are now, we're now at the process of the next level of evolution where these different countries will at some point come together and say, you know what? We're all humans here. We have to share this. I mean, and besides this topic I'm talking about, climate change is the number one, really the number one thing we need to get together about. And we will not get together unless we realize we all share awareness. So when we share awareness as oneness, then the natural process of evolution is to meet the other ones and, and go to the next level of our evolution. Does that make sense? Okay, are you done? I'm done, I wanna hear your take on it. Yes, thank you. So. Um, that's great. You know, you gave us a good summary of the book. You also gave us your ideas of where we could go and, you know, its connection to human evolution, right. also the evolution of human consciousness, and also, you know, the idea that if we experience ourselves as oneness, then we have uh, a possibly a roadmap 
to other dimensions. So other ones. let me take, well, let me take um, everything you said and put it in a slightly different framework. Okay. okay? okay. That'll require a little bit of uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes. So That's give me fine. 10, yeah. 15 minutes to put this in another framework. So right now, uh, according to astrophysics, current astrophysics, there could be two trillion galaxies. We are in the Milky Way galaxies, which has a uh, hundred billion stars. And uh, if you do some math, then uh, you look at these extraterrestrial telescopes out there, mm -hmm. the new ones, you know, not, not the Hubble telescope, but the new ones, James Watson and many others. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a telescope. We've created the junkyard of infinity right next door. And so India is putting telescopes, China is putting telescopes, everybody has the capacity. And what astrophysicists think right now, current, um, current science, and if you Google this, 700 sextillion stars, that's 700 followed by innumerable zeros, two trillion galaxies and uncountable trillions of planets estimated 40 billion habitable planets just in the Milky Way galaxy. Forget the two trillion other galaxies. So if you put all that in context and understand what we're looking at and where, what is planet Earth, then planet Earth is one grain of sand in all the beaches of the planet. One grain of sand in all the beaches of this planet. And here we are, one species called Homo sapiens and we are talking about the whole universe and two trillion galaxies. Uh, part of that could be hubris, part of that could be illusion, part of that could be, um, could be just imagination, or part of that could be science. How do I look at this? Because I've struggled all my life with what is the nature of reality. So right now, if you question scientific reality and Look at the competing schools. First of all, look at the history of science. Okay, until about 500 years ago, there was no science. You know, human beings have been on this planet, according to current science. Again, I'm just going by standard biological evolutionary science. Human beings, as Homo sapiens, have been here for 200,000 years. Our planet has been here for about five billion years. Life began on this planet about 3 billion years ago, 2.8 billion years ago. But humans evolved only 200,000 years ago. And up until 40, 50,000 years ago, uh, until what we call the cognitive revolution, there were about eight different species of humans. We are Homo sapiens, Homo neanderthals, Homo floroensis, etc., etc all part of the human family, just like tigers and lions and cheetahs and leopards and your house cat are the same family, but they're different species. There were lots of humans and there were different species. The species only mates within itself in its own group, but they all look similar, you know, anatomy, biology. So what happened? How did Homo sapiens begin to dominate? Because Humans, about 30,000, 40,000 years ago, when what scientists or anthropologists call the cognitive revolution, they started making models or constructs from their experiences. 
And basically they started telling stories. And you know, the stories were made up based on, as you said, Bruce Lipton said, you have an experience, then you make up a story. You come up with a theory. By the way, it works the other way around too. You have a story and then you go look for the experience. So it's entangled. In any case, 40,000 years ago, one species became storytellers, that's humans, okay? So the first stories were mythical stories, all myth, made up, you know, the word myth is an interesting thing. It's a cultural story. And then mythical stories became religious stories. And until about 12,000 years ago, those were the dominant stories, myth, religion. 12,000 years ago, there was what is called this agricultural revolution. So we moved from, you know, being hunter gatherers to the age of agriculture. Then the stories really began to evolve because, you know, we had deities, we have gods, we have goddesses, we have God, and the stories are both of masculine archetypes, feminine archetypes. That happened till about 500 years ago. We forget that science is only four to 500 years old. And the first science was Newtonian, which is physical matter is the reality. We live in a theater of space-time and causality where objects move. If they're inanimate objects, they move because of the laws of motion and gravity. And if they're animate objects, they can move by themselves. And, you know, we know all the laws of Newton, laws of thermodynamics, and they're all physical laws. And they work. If you apply those laws, you can send man to the moon, just on Newtonian physics. You don't need relativity. You don't need quantum mechanics, nothing. The mathematics of Isaac Newton allows you and did allow us to create what we call the industrial age. Now, something interesting happened 100 years ago. There were three things that happened. And one was the special theory of relativity with, uh, Isaac, uh, no, with Albert Einstein. Fundamentally, the special theory 1905 says that the speed of light is a constant for all observers. Energy is equal to mass. And uh, if you go very fast, time slows down. If you go at infinite speeds, time stops. Mathematically, that's all true. And many experiments have verified, actually, uh, Einstein's special theory of relativity. That was followed in 1915 by the general theory of relativity, which is completely different. It's about the curvature of space-time. And from that, you derive gravity and black holes and all this stuff. So that was also about 100 years ago, while at the same time, there was um, what we call the quantum revolution happening. And Einstein was part of it, but he was a kind of a reluctant participant in the quantum revolution. Okay. So then what happens is we have three theories now, special theory of relativity, general theory of relativity, and quantum mechanics. The general theory of relativity does not match or explain quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics doesn't uh, um, explain the general theory. There are lots of problems, dark matter, dark energy, about 35 interpretations of quantum mechanics. The original one was Copenhagen. You need a conscious observer to collapse the wave function. Now, here are my problems with all the scientific theories. 
including relativity, including quantum mechanics, and including uh, um, actually, yeah, both theories of relativity. They all talk about observer. You know, the observer collapses the wave function. If the observer is traveling at the speed of light and is in a certain location, this is what the experience is. So I've been to a lot of these conferences. I ask people, what is an observer? Where is the observer? And here's the problem from a scientific point of view. An observer cannot be found. So, you know, if I, if I go inside your brain or inside your body, and I can do that today with all kinds of technology, I can take a sugar molecule, radio label it, put it in your bloodstream, do a PET scan and see which part of the brain is corresponding through a, a what we call electrochemical activity to a thought or to an image or to an emotion. In other words, I can look at your brain and see everything that's happening in your brain. Mm-hmm. today but there's no observer to be found okay there is no observer to be found there's no little alan steinfield inside the brain looking out at through these eyes at the world or hearing this world through these ears or touching this world um, you know the furniture or the book there's right. if i have to raise my hand what is it that raises the hand so, you know, I say, I raise my hand, but who's the I that raises the hand? Can't be found. Right. Okay, the only reason the observer cannot be found in the body is it's not there. Okay, uh, otherwise you would be able to find it. Right. And the reason it's not there is that the observer, that which we call the observer, doesn't have a form. Okay, if it had a form, we'd be able to see it. Even the Milky Way galaxy, it is this wide, okay? The cosmic horizon is 47 billion light years away from us. Mm -hmm. But whenever we say a horizon, we assume a border, but there is no border, okay? When you get to the horizon, another horizon. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the observer cannot be located the fact that the observer doesn't have a form, that the observer is not in the body or the brain, allows us to come up with a different hypothesis. And that hypothesis that the observer is infinite, is non-local, is not in space-time. And what we call the body and the brain and the universe are experiences in the observer. Okay, but that observer is not embodied. Okay, when we say I incarnated, Mm -hmm. so and so is an embodied soul. It's wrong. In my opinion, it's wrong. There's no soul inside the body. The body is in the soul. Mm -hmm. So when somebody dies, the body leaves, the mind leaves, the soul has nowhere to go because it's non-local, it's infinite. And it's part of a bigger soul, which in religious traditions you can call God, an infinite being, or Ein Sof, or Allah, or whatever. But your soul is part of the consciousness of an infinite soul. And being formless, it too is infinite, okay? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't have a form. So your soul, Alan Steinfeld, is a name. It's a Mm -hmm. construct. Mm 
Right. And Allenstein's Allen's body is a verb. It's not a noun. It started as a fertilized ovum, mm -hmm. and it'll end with death. Any and everything in between: a zygote and an embryo, a baby, infant, child. So, the body is not a noun. Mm -hmm. It's a verb. It's a shifting experience in the observer, the soul, whatever you want to call it. Okay, the non-local soul. It's a shifting experience. So your body is not a physical entity. It's not made of matter. In fact, if you are a scientist, has anyone done an experiment to show the existence of a substance called matter? The answer is no. Matter is a human name for a changing perceptual activity in human consciousness. And that's what we call the world. That's what we call my body. And even that changing perceptual activity is less than 1% of the acoustic spectrum and 1% of the visual spectrum. And it's totally unreliable. So my perception tells me the earth is flat. No one believes that anymore. Mm -hmm. My perception tells me that the ground I'm standing on is stationary. Nobody believes that. It's spinning at dizzying speeds and hurtling through space at thousands of miles an hour. Mm -hmm. My perception tells me that you are a three-dimensional anatomical entity and that's a magical lie, just as the same thing as the earth is flat is a magical lie or the ground is stationary is a magical lie. Your body is proportionately as void as intergalactic space. If I could see it as it really is, I'd see a huge emptiness with a few scattered dots and spots and some random electrical discharges, which in turn are fluctuations of formless being or formless non-local consciousness. So every time I look at the world, whether I look at your book or I look at the computer, I look on the screen, I look at you, I look at the Milky Way galaxy, I identify an extraterrestrial object, whatever it is, it's a magical lie. It's a magical lie because it appears real, but in fact, it's not real. How do we know the proof of this? Well, every time you look at the world, it's not the same. You look at me, you look there, and then look at me again. It's a different being, right? So by the time you hear my words, they don't exist. Mm -hmm. By the time you recognize me as Deepak, that what you recognize as Deepak has gone. You've just taken a perceptual snapshot, and then you created this story. Planet Earth, you know, 600, right. whatever, trillions of stars. There is a continuity to Deepak. There's somebody. The, the, the continuity is the gap between experience. Just let me tell you that. Let okay. me finish. The sure. continuity is the formless being, not the form. The form is always changing. I, the formless being, are morphing myself into infinite appearances. Now, I have morphed myself into infinite appearances as a human being. But the I am that I am can morph itself into an insect with a hundred eyes or with the, as a bat that experiences the world as ultrasound. So when Wittgenstein said this, this world is a dream, we are asleep once in a while, we wake up enough to know that we're dreaming, he's correct. Because if I asked you what happened to your childhood, you'd say it's a dream. What happened, what happened to your teenage years? It's a dream. What happened to last night? It's a dream. What happened to this morning? It's a dream. What happened to five minutes ago? It's a dream. What happens to these words by the time you hear them? Mm. They don't exist. You only experience the dream. 
Now, that's fine. If you go now read somebody like, what's his name, Sean Carroll, professor of astrophysics, Caltech University, sits on the same desk as Feynman. Einstein was one day, one long time ago in that same office. These are very important people. And Sean Carroll has now written a book called Something Deeply Hidden. And that book says that mathematically speaking, and according to theories of string theory and eternal inflation, there are infinite universes and there are infinite beings and there might be infinite versions of you. And he believes that totally from a physicalist point of view as the reality. Mm -hmm. Now it's fine because if you assume that, you know, then there are all these dimensions that you speak of. In fact, yesterday I spoke to Dava, a professor at MIT Media Lab, who's just designed all the software for landing on Mars. She's also designed all the uniforms for the people who land on Mars. I told her Mars is part of the dreamscape and the, you know, the landing is all part of the dreamscape and we are all fictional characters. Right. And she said, first she resisted, but then she said, well, that's another point of view. Certainly not another point of view. So what I'm saying to you, you can assume that everything is real mm -hmm. and you'll be right. Or you can assume that everything is unreal, but we project onto it reality and you'll be right. Mm -hmm. Now, where do I stand? There are only three philosophies right now in science. One is matter only. Okay. But matter only doesn't explain any experience, doesn't explain how matter creates thoughts, how matter creates intuition, inspiration, creativity, vision, imagination, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, ideas. That's called the hard problem of consciousness. Nobody can tell you how matter produces mind. Now, if you say mind produces matter, you also have a problem. How does mind produce matter? You know, how does something that's as ephemeral as a thought or what we call images or consciousness or whatever produce matter? And that's also a problem. So maybe they're all wrong. Maybe what we call matter is a changing perceptual activity in human consciousness, which we interpret as matter. And there's only consciousness. And being infinite, it manifests as infinite universes. Mm -hmm. So if I read the Yoga Vashishta, which is one of the greatest texts of all time, the great yogi says, infinite universes come and go in the vast expanse of consciousness, like motes of dust dancing in a beam of light that's shining through a hole in my roof. So right. imagine a hole in your uh, roof, a beam of light, and these motes of dust are infinite universes, but there could be infinite holes, mm -hmm. and there could be infinite beams, all with infinite universes. Current mathematics says that's true. But mathematics is also an activity in consciousness. So if you leave the matter-only ontological primitive, if you leave the dualistic thinking that mind and matter are two different things, because that doesn't make sense. If the mind and matter are two different things, then I can't even lift my hand. It starts with the thought, ends up with the material thing. So it violates the thoughts. Either it's only consciousness or it's only matter. Make your choice. Mm -hmm. Now, if you make the choice, only consciousness, then you can explore what you call the outer world with all these technologies. You can explore the inner world by going to the source of all 
knowing, source of all knowing, not just human knowing, bat knowing, knowing of an insect with a hundred eyes, knowing of other beings, because the source of knowing is one. So if I had to propose a mathematical formula, it would be zero is equal to one is equal to infinity. And that solves everything. It gets rid of Einstein's theory, which is based on naive realism, which is also called scientific realism. So naive realism says the physical world e exists exactly as humans experience it, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It also says that the physical world exactly as humans would exist, even if there were new humans. So yeah, well, the physical world that you observe would be the same as to a horseshoe crab. That's nonsense. Mm -hmm. So naive realism, scientific realism has very major flaws. Embodied observer, there's no such thing. Subject object split, no such thing. Matter as the fundamental reality, no such thing. Now, when I interviewed Wilczek, the Nobel Prize winner in physics, he said the fundamental ingredients of the universe are three things, spin, charge, and mass. And then he said, they don't have any structure. They don't have any dimensionality. Um, they don't have any location. And yet they create the whole universe, spin, charge, and mass. So what are spin, charge, and mass? They're movements and consciousness, activities. Spin is the fundamental activity of creation. Charge is transformation. And mass is what we call matter. But none of them begin with anything that we call physical. So if we go with this ontology, then we can explore the outer world through these technologies. We can explore the inner world through what you call mystics. But in fact, there is no inner and there is no outer. All there is is consciousness producing qualities of experience that we call qualia. Qualia means quality of experience. Colors, shapes, forms, sounds, tastes, textures, smells, thoughts, feelings, emotions, imagination. That's reality. The rest is a story. And we, we, we are, we're amazing people as a species because our stories are able to create artificial intelligence, able to send people to Mars, people to, um, to other planets, investigate infinite universes, create mathematics. The reason is math, physics, biology, astrophysics, and everything that you can name or conceptualize or imagine or think of is a fluctuation of consciousness as sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, perceptions, which are species specific. Now you go to the source of consciousness, then there are infinite species or sentient beings manufacturing their old universes. Then once in a while, there's leaky margins. So you see an extraterrestrial object. I just interviewed Avi Loeb, Harvard, who's identified this extraterrestrial object, which he thinks is from an advanced civilization, could be in the future. So what is future? It depends on the location. What is past depends on the location. What is infinite dimensions? Once you realize there's no location, infinite dimensions mm -hmm. are available to you. So this is a very important book, and it opens the window to outer and inner which are both produced by the self of all selves, the self of the selves that we call infinite mm -hmm. being. But because you are formless, you are an aspect of the infinite being, just like a ripple 
on the surface of the ocean is an aspect of the ocean. And the ocean has infinite ripples. And if you are located in one ripple, then you'll see all these other things within the limitations of what we call the umwelt, the narrow band of perceptual activity that has been given to you as a species by an infinite consciousness. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I think making contact makes total sense, looking at the outer, going in the inner, but realizing that both outer and inner have their source in that which is infinite and has infinite dimensions. So that's my response. No, no, I, I, I like that. What if everything you said is also a story based on belief and science? I'm just throwing that out. And the other part of that, what if there's a new story coming that we have not thought of that will intersect with the old story because it's coming from other beings that don't think like us. I mean, yes, it all comes down to consciousness, but what if these other beings bring into our reality more technology? You know, everything you've said, talked about consciousness, it wouldn't serve the development of phenomena. I'm talking about phenomena. You, you're, you're couching it in a good way in the transcendent, where it goes beyond phenomena. I'm talking about, let's stay in that in-between world where phenomena is an evolution. It's an evolution of knowing, it's an evolution of being. And what if this interaction with these other realms is evolving us technologically, scientifically, biologically, cosmology? And that's sort of the game I like to play in the sense like, yes, it's all consciousness, it's all awareness, it's all, but let's play in between those places and let's add a different story to the possibility of what this world, this moment in time may be about. What do you have a response for that? Okay, my response is that first of all, any story you embed yourself in mm. will be true for you, number one just like the ancient stories of Greece and mythology, etc., the religion or Einstein, or mm -hmm. there's all stories. And yes, I'm telling a story because the only way to communicate is to create a story. But even as I tell you that it's a story, what I'm realizing is that the source of stories is the most important thing, not the story itself. Mm -hmm. When you know the source of stories, then you know that to be human is to have a story, but to believe in a solid three-dimensional reality as fundamental is a limitation mm -hmm. because then you're only looking for three-dimensional embodied beings. And in my opinion, there's no embodied being. There are, all the bodies are in, in that same non-local awareness. Yes. And if you use that model, then we will jumpstart many stories because a radically new story is a death and a resurrection. Mm. It's a new context, new meaning, new story, new imagination. Mm. And what we really need is the, a fundamental assumption for the new stories that we will create mm. because everything begins with an assumption. The assumption is what is called an axiom or actually today scientists call it the miracle. The first miracle is the assumption. So when you say the physical world is real, that's the first assumption and it's a miracle because you have not taken this stance. The world 
is physical and material. And then every story you build on that will be a material story mm. because that's your fundamental assumption. And that material story will expand your range of experience, but it won't make it infinite. If you, on the other hand, make the assumption that the world is not physical, that the universe is not physical, it is a manifestation and a species specific manifestation which can assume infinite forms, then you will not limit yourself to your stories. You will first create new science fiction and then you create new science and then you'll explore nude maps because all the time remembering that the map is not the territory, but once you have a map, then you can explore this, that territory, Mars, this, that, the other. Well, There's no conflict between what you're saying. Right. Either everything is real or everything is equally unreal and doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it really doesn't matter. What matters is the experience. So I have a very big problem with knowledge precedes experience. Mm. Experience precedes knowledge. Just so you, uh, first you yes. have to experience gravity. You have to see the apple fall down or you have to know that you can't float okay so any concept we have force fields atoms molecules particles these are stories that come from human experience then we create stories then we create science then we create observations then we create hypotheses then we do validation or invalidation of the story and that's how science progresses. Mm -hmm. And you should know that every story in science, so far told, has been falsified. Every story. Right. It's partly complete. Newton has been falsified by Einstein. Einstein falsified by quantum mechanics. Now total confusion. So that's a very good thing, which it tells you every story is provisional, whether it's religious, mythical, or scientific. Right. I agree with that. And what if there's an experience that we can explain? What if some people are encountering something that's beyond the imagination that actually leaves them um, unable to communicate? And, and some of the trends in this field of ufology, whatever you want to call this, is that these, it's going along your point of view, is that maybe these aren't alien, maybe these are not other beings, maybe it's something so ineffable that it can't be named, yet there's a presence that exists. And this is where the field is going. This is the illusions that I um, point to in, the, in this book is that we're calling something this or that, like you're saying, but it's all been falsified, but still, there is something. What is this something that you've experienced in those deep meditative states? I'm sure you've met beings that have appeared there. I don't know. But there's something that happens when consciousness reflects upon itself and new, because what you're saying is, in a sense, it, everything that's been here has always been here. And I'm saying, I'm agreeing with that, but I also say, yes, there's more to creation that's unfolding every minute into the unknown. Maybe you're saying that too, but how do we couch the unknown and reference it as part of a human evolution, as part of a new story? I'm looking for that sort of framework that you would suggest as new stories unfold and new experiences are laid out. 
and evolution of culture and civilizations take place, we need the new story that is yet to form. And that's sort of what I'm looking to put forth in this book and to validate people's experience, but not in terms of a language, but in terms of a, a searching for, for existence. Okay, so I have two responses. Yes. You first used the word presence. Yes. And that's all there is, presence, period. Everything else is a story, okay? Presence is the only reality, in my view. Mm -hmm. Everything else is a story. And stories make sense to people who have had experiences that validate those stories. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they've come up with explanation. Now, you said you use the word explanation. And my response is, there's no explanation for existence, period. Mm. Okay, wait, let me finish. There's yeah. no explanation for existence. And why is there no explanation for existence is there's no cause for existence. Why is there no cause for existence? Because existence has always existed as infinite possibilities eternally in timeless now. So yes, humans have a need to come up with an explanation. But when you say I came up with an explanation or Einstein came up or whoever, what are we talking about? The embodied Einstein with that brain or body or the non-local consciousness using the brain body as a modality of knowing and experience. It's very complex. When you start to look for explanations, you realize there's no explanation for anything. But as humans, we should come up with explanations because once we come up with the explanations and stories embed ourselves in the stories then we project that as our reality and without the story there's no experience anyway okay mm -hmm. so Rumi said God's language is silence everything else is poor translation but then he himself never shut up after that <laughs> right so what if Deepak there sitting there for that moment and the next moment has an experience that um, is unlike anything Deepak has experienced before. And, and the natural impulse among humans in this limited form is to look for explanations, to create a story. Isn't that something you're impulsively, maybe you've transcended that, looking to do? You have a fantastic being appear. You, you're transported to some dimension. Something happens to you. You're looking for it. Maybe you say it's neurochemistry. Maybe that's what people do when they take hallucinogens. It's neurochemistry. But what do you... Neurochemistry is another story. Exactly. Okay. So what do you do with your experience that is inexpressible, in a sense? You regard the universe as an infinite playground for creativity, and you align yourself with the infinite creator so you yourself can play in infinite stories all the time realizing that you are the conceiver, the constructor, the governor, mm. and that which embeds itself in the story to create the reality. It's nice, it's nice. I can create a beautiful dream-like story mm. and embed myself, call it heaven. I can create the opposite and call it hell. But they're all within the range of infinite uh, experiences. Right. So between the divine and diabolical, there's every nuance of experience, every story that is possible that we have imagined that we have not imagined because imagination is another never ending horizon and it precedes the story. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Uh, you're looking, we're looking, I think, at two different lenses here. I think you're, you're the transcendence. And I'm saying Newton had a story. And because of Newton's stories, we have automobiles, airplanes, computers, everything, because that story panned out on some level. So the, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the evolution of story in a practical way to expand human society and bridge that with a, a universe full of intelligence. That's the yeah, story. That's a good story. And you know, as we embark on the next story of quantum entanglement, mm -hmm. you will definitely have a new framework for teleportation mm -hmm. and instant communication and visiting other dimensions. Mm -hmm. All of that will happen. It'll be part of the new story. Mm -hmm. It'll be fun, but the stories will one day be validated and then another day be falsified mm -hmm. so we can create more stories. I agree. I totally agree. But I'm looking at the excitement of a new story and not to believe the new story, but just the fact that human creativity is now in the process of a new threshold of being, of interaction. And what is that new story? Let's play with it. Let's explore the universe. Let's become more than the awful, angry, warlike beings that have been part of the old story. Let's come together as a single planet. Let's meet. Well, that's very good. That's yeah. very good. Because yeah. when you talk about these extraterrestrial beings, maybe they have more advanced technology, but they're not emotionally or spiritually as advanced as humans are. You don't know. I don't okay, know. Because we are now living on planet Earth with very advanced technologies and medieval stories already, tribal okay. stories already. So you know, mystery is it, and ultimately you surrender to mystery. And but the mystery is just for me gotten more exciting with the awareness of this other reality. 100%. I'm on board with that. So, so we can continue this conversation at this open center event that we're doing on July 27th. Sure. And I want to get into in that conversation what you make of the government coming forward with what was called the preliminary assessment of UAPs. That's the new word for UFOs. And it's it's a document that was released on June 21st to the Senate Intelligence Committee, which talks about their observations of this phenomena, another story. But nobody knows what this is. And I want your assessment in terms of practical application of how we can work with this new understanding of that the world is more than human folly. Yes, yeah, I'd be happy to address that. Yes. I'm, 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 knowing that anything that's practical is not real. <laughs> it's not but real. It's, it's fun. It's all we have to go on. I mean, we could say it is all consciousness and just sleep all day, which no, was fun. No, 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 no. If it says consciousness, you have access to infinite stories mm. and infinite realities and infinite lokas. Mm. The word for multiple universes in Sanskrit is loka. Loka means location, but mm. not location in space-time, a frequency domain in infinite consciousness. It doesn't matter. Either way, it works. So let's expand the story next time we talk and see what is possible within the infinite domain. What can we create? What is, because I really feel we're on the threshold of a new story that doesn't look anything like the old story. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This wonderful conversation.